Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome to this week's episode, a special Easter episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and back with us today is Tim Cockrell. Tim shared from Matthew chapter 27 and 28 in his recent Easter sermon, and that message will be the focus of our discussion today. And Tim, let's just start with it. True or false? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulcrum on which all of history balances. Oh, I know the answer to this one. Okay, good, good, I'm gonna good. I'm going to say true. I thought you were going to say God. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, <laughs> that a, that's a good answer as well. Uh, no, I mean, it is. It's the foundation of our faith, and without the resurrection, everything crumbles. You know, we wouldn't have any hope. And one of the things I was reflecting on even as uh, we were preparing for Easter is even though we recognize that the, the resurrection is central and it's essential, I find even for myself when I'm sharing the gospel with someone – Often this is a detail that I leave out. I don't know whether it's because I feel like it seems so fantastic that um, you know we want to just focus on the substitution of Christ and the cross. But I think if we affirm that the resurrection is essential, we need to make sure we include that even as we're sharing the gospel because without it, we don't have any hope. Paul talks about that. We might share a little bit about that later on. Well, yep. Tim, you referenced early in your mm-hmm. message that the disciples were trusting their experiences and not Jesus' promises. It seems to me that this is a continuing theme in many of our lives. And I'm going to say all of our mm-hmm. lives, right? You and I deal with these same types of things, those who claim Jesus as Savior. Can, can you share some of the ways that maybe you guard against that type of mindset and, and how we all can deal with that? Right. Well, I think, first of all, it's just recognizing how prevalent it is, you know, because every one of us in the moment, our emotions or our circumstances can speak louder than the truth of God's word. You know, for the disciples in this instance, it was the crushing weight of disappointment and the confusion of their unmet expectations that completely overshadowed the fact that Jesus had said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again three days later. But for all of us, we can allow our opinions or our experiences to be kind of the final arbiter of truth so that what we see and experience becomes true for us, even if God's word has said something different. You know, sometimes I joke that this is Disney theology, that you you follow your heart. And if you just follow your heart, that's going to lead you to where all your dreams come true. But we know that our perspective is limited, that our heart is sinful. And we can easily focus so much on the problem that we lose sight of God's faithfulness and his grace uh, because we're so focused on those circumstances. So how do we avoid this? I I think, again, first of all, we have to saturate ourselves with God's truth. You know, that is going to reorient our perspective and remind us of what is true, especially when our emotions are are kind of all-consuming in our lives. Secondly, I think we have to recognize the danger that when we experience those strong desires or deep disappointment, we can easily get kind of tunnel vision and focus only on that one thing. You know, our emotions often want to be the engine of the train. And what we have to do is relegate them to the caboose, say, no, we're going to be led by truth. We're going to be led by the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we guide our heart rather than following our heart. And I think that's a much more biblical perspective. And finally, I think we have to surround ourselves with community. Because even if we're faithfully studying God's word and and coming to church to hear God's word taught, 
we can still go astray. Just this week I was reading a book on eldership, actually, and, and the importance of community and eldership. It's called Practical Plurality. And one of the points that the author makes is we need each other because we all have those blind spots. We all can be prone to be swayed by our emotions or experiences. And so having Christian community is an important safeguard in that way as well. Now, don't give us a book title without the author. I want to know who you're here. Uh, I'd have to look yeah, it up. Okay. <laughs> what was the title again? Practical Plurality. Very good. Okay, good. We'll look it up. Google it, folks. So what you're saying is, and the way I kind of I look for a barometer in my own life, I look at what is occupying my mind when I'm at rest. Mm-hmm. What's coming to my mind? Am I worrying about the, the financial situation or mm-hmm. am I worrying about – now, all of these are – very important mm-hmm. to us, a uh, financial situation or what the kids are doing or where I'm going on vacation tomorrow or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. If it's not Christ occupying me, I, st- I just need to keep digging into the Word. Is that what you're saying? Well, and, and framing it in that perspective. Because like you say, all these are legitimate desires or concerns or circumstances can be really heavy sometimes. Life is real. It is. But if we don't frame it in the right perspective... Suddenly our problems seem really big and our God seems really small. And so we have to be looking for the signs of God's faithfulness. We have to be reminding ourselves of even the ways he's been faithful in the past. I think that's one of the reasons why he had the Israelites build these memorials of stone along the way. Because they would look back and say, God has always been faithful. He's never failed us. And yet, I'll speak for myself, many times I'm forgetful. And and I'll say, oh, God's been faithful. And then three months later, I'm like, oh. What, am, what are we going to do in this situation? And we just have to remind ourselves of, of what God's word reminds us is true. Okay, so let's let's move on down a little bit further down that road. Let's talk a little bit about the disciples' mindset. It's, it's late Friday, Saturday, and then early Sunday morning following the crucifixion. And it, it appears from the other gospel accounts that we can read, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, that they were gathered together. He said, mm-hmm. go tell the 11. And Perhaps they were gathered together. It seems like they probably were. Mm-hmm. Then they received the messages that the angel and Jesus gave the women here in Matthew. And it seems that there is a lot about the relationship between Jesus and all his followers that we can learn from this brief account. You, you mentioned the three points to that message uh, yesterday. Jesus is telling us all something. Mm-hmm. I think the, the essential message that he's giving us is that it's all about grace. You know, it's not like the disciples were sitting there as an example of <laughs> of faithfulness. They had failed Jesus. Peter had denied him. They had all abandoned him at the point of his greatest need. They're hiding now. Right, exactly. They're terrified. And so after three years of training with Jesus every single day, not one of them passed the test. John maybe would be the closest one because he was there at the cross. But even then, every one of them had failed him. But I think that's the whole point here, is that apart from Jesus and what he did on the cross and the victory he secured in the empty tomb, none of them could follow Jesus the way they had been called to. So what they needed was not more instruction or better commands. What they needed was a new heart. And that's what Jesus had, had done through his death and his resurrection. And so as he sends a message to them, I think it's clear that he's not angry with them. He's not impatient with them. In fact, he welcomes them in their brokenness, in their weakness, in their failures to come to him so that he can restore them. And and so I think that's a great comfort for us because every one of us struggle and fail. We we deal with doubts in different times. But once the, the disciples encountered Christ, those doubts were dispelled and they were transformed 
by their faith in Christ. So here are these guys that were hiding in the darkness, terrified. Once they encountered the risen Christ and were commissioned by him, these were the same ones that stood before the religious leaders saying, we must obey God rather than men. They were preaching to thousands of people and every one of them went to their death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so when I think about what this message is for us, it's that God is not impatient with us in our weakness and failure, but rather he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's good news for us, that he isn't sitting there looking at our spiritual resume, seeing if we make the cut. He's saying, come and I will make you uh, what you need to be. And if we look at their response, if we look at Jesus's response to them, we can see there's really nothing as bad as denying the Savior, uh, turning your back on the Savior when he's at his greatest need, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's in Gethsemane or up on the cross. As you said, John is the only one we know was there. Mm -hmm. And so even in spite of that, Jesus said, I'm here, guys, and I still love you. Right, and and that he wants to restore them. And I think that's good news because every one of us struggle and fail and deal with fear. And it just reminds us that our relationship with him is purely of his grace. And even the transformation he calls us to is accomplished by his spirit. You know, Philippians 1 verse 6 reminds us that he who began a good work in us, he will be the one who will be faithful to bring it to completion. And I hesitate to bring this up, but we haven't really talked about this, but a couple of chapters later in the narrative, we could pick it up in Acts, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit. The mm-hmm. Holy Spirit had not come as it had uh, you know, yet as it will in uh, Acts chapter 2, they didn't, uh, we can make the argument, they maybe didn't even have the power, is that a fair argument to make? Absolutely. To do what was called the, called of them? Exactly. That apart from Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, they could not be and do what he had called them to. That's why he even says, don't leave Jerusalem until you mm-hmm. have the Holy Spirit. Fascinating. You know? But once you have the Holy Spirit, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so I think that reminds us that our hope is not in our ability or our maturity or our biblical knowledge. Our hope is that the resurrection power of Christ is in us and that he, for reasons beyond our comprehension, chooses to use us to accomplish his work as he works in our lives. And putting the positive message that Christ is all in all, basically, mm-hmm. which is what the, the Old Testament was saying all the way through. Right. It was also saying that, see what you can do on your own. Mm-hmm. You tried to do it on your own, Adam, and look what you, look what's happening. And all the way up through this right. point, we're seeing that. Yes. Okay, good. Well, the title of your sermon was This Changes Everything. I love that title because as we talked about in our adult Bible fellowship class yesterday morning about the change for eternity that the resurrection that the resurrection, I'm sorry, brings about. Specifically, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 about the eternal effect of the resurrection, that change that is an eternal one. Uh, It brings on the world and everyone and everything in the world. Let's talk about that change that Paul talks about there in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes. I think one of the key things for us to remember is that the word gospel that we often will translate, you know, as good news, that's just a weak translation because this word good news was actually 
an earth-shattering, life-changing kind of news. Like in, in the context in the Bible, it would be used like if your army had won a victory and someone came to proclaim the good news that the victory was yours or that a new king had been born and that this changed everything. There was a promise of peace and prosperity. And so when we're sharing the good news, it's not just like, hey, I saved 15% of my car insurance. Woo-hoo. No, this is everything is different because this is true. And so when Paul is talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection, he first of all starts off by verifying the trustworthiness of it. And what I love is the very first thing he says is, you know the resurrection is true because you've believed it. Hmm. Which almost seems like a circular argument until you pause and say, no, we know it's true because we have a relationship with the risen Savior. We've seen his power at work in our lives. And then he goes on to say, you know it's true because of the testimony of the scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures and was buried and was raised again according to the scriptures. And then he says, you also know it's true because of all the eyewitnesses. You know, up to 500 people, he tells us there in verse 6, saw him and witnessed the risen Christ. And then from there, he goes on to describe what that means for us. So, you know, what difference does it make? You know, first of all, it confirms the forgiveness of our sins. The fact that Jesus emerged from the tomb was God's way of stamping paid in full across the pages of history. You know, I used the illustration yesterday in my message that a prisoner is only in prison until justice is satisfied. And so when Jesus walks out of the tomb, it shows that his death accomplished everything that was needed for the payment of our sins. Secondly, it promises life after death. That because Jesus was raised, we know that if we trust in him, we ourselves will be raised to have a resurrection body like Christ. He is the the first fruits, Paul tells us, of the resurrection. Thirdly, it also demonstrates that he has power over sin and death. That every authority, every enemy, if you will, will be placed under his feet because he crushed the power of sin and was victorious over death so that death no longer has any sting for us which honestly is really good news, especially for those who've experienced death. I know there's many in our church family who have experienced the death of a loved one just in the past year. And, and it's not going to take that ache away, but it's going to change the way we grieve if that person knew Christ and had the hope of Christ. And finally, it gives every one of us the hope of eternity in heaven with Christ, that it lifts our eyes kind of beyond the pain of the present to the hope that's on the horizon, because the best is yet to come. So to deny the resurrection is, in effect, to deny the gospel, to deny the fact that we even needed help. And can that person who denies the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, where does that put them with God? I would say they don't have salvation if you don't have the resurrection. Because apart from the resurrection, Jesus is just another good teacher. You know, if he says, I am the resurrection and the life, but he himself is not raised— Well, that's a false hope. That's a phony gospel. And it really makes it more about kind of a a moral program, if you will, to to love others and be a good person. Well, that maybe will make you a good citizen, but it won't make you a kingdom citizen. But if we believe that Jesus died and was raised, that suddenly gives us a hope beyond this broken world. It, It lifts our eyes to eternity and gives us a confidence, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Tim, Paul speaks of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. You mentioned the, the uh, word earlier, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this idea of first fruits have to do with 
who Jesus is and the whole idea of the resurrection. Why why first fruits? What what does that mean for us? Sure. Well, you know, I love first fruits because it's a farming term. You know, there I you grew go. up on a farm. <laughs> I can remember, you know, we'd have a big stand of sweet corn and you'd always be going out there to check how the corn was going along. And it was always exciting when you had those first few ears of corn that you could pull off mm-hmm. and boil and, mm-hmm. you know, those early August days that you could finally enjoy the crop that you had planted, you know, those months ago. You know, maybe if you're a gardener, you know, that first tomato you get off the vine <laughs> or the first lettuce that oh, you bring in. Oh, you're talking in. my language here. You know. But what it is, is that is the glimpse of the harvest that you are anticipating that your garden or your, your farm is going to produce in, in the coming weeks. And so you get a taste of how good that harvest is going to be. So the fact that Jesus was the first fruits, he was the first victory over death. That is the promise that every one of us who have placed our faith in him will have the same resurrection life, same eternal hope because he is alive. So we'll be raised from the dead because of our faith in him. And what I love about this is that in some ways it's an already and not yet. Yes, we have the hope that when we die, we will be raised and we'll be with him in eternity. But even when we do a baptism here at our church, we'll say we are buried in the likeness of his death from Romans chapter 6. But we are then raised to walk in newness of life. Mm -hmm. That we have that eternal life, not just someday, but today living in us, empowering us, transforming us. And so in many ways, the first fruit isn't just a someday kind of idea, but a transforming reality in the present. And we probably shouldn't go past the idea that uh, this whole, the idea of resurrection is really putting us back to where God had things at the beginning. God made the earth to be perfect. God made the earth, made our bodies human bodies to last forever in the first place mm-hmm. back in genesis we read that so this is not a new concept the resurrection obviously is a concept that is revolutionary it is the fulcrum of history but mm-hmm. is it not a restoration of the original design absolutely it's a part of the reverse of the curse that you know jesus said that he would well you know genesis 3 says he will crush the head of the serpent and restore his creation and so we find ourselves now in that already, not yet. Right. That, that we have the confidence that God is in the process of redeeming even the brokenness and pain and heartache that we experience. And as we mentioned yesterday in the message, that's what gives us hope in, you know, as a result of the resurrection, is that this world is not our home, but that we have a hope that is on the horizon that we are living for. And so we, we will live forever but it's not just that we'll live forever. Every one of us will live forever. It's a matter of where we will live forever, and that is in God's presence. And as one in my class uh, pointed out yesterday, when we get to that point, when we see him face-to-face, hope is gone because hope is realized. Yep. There is no need for hope anymore. Yep. We are seeing him face-to-face. Well, then we go to a passage like Colossians 3. Paul discusses there in Colossians 3 and elsewhere about the immediate change. So we've got the eternal change that he discusses in 1 Corinthians 15, but the immediate change and the the, uh, timely change that should evidence this resurrection in all believers. Mm-hmm. Can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah, let me just read that passage, actually, because you know, when you mentioned this to me this morning, I was like, yeah, that's such a, a rich place to reflect. Mm-hmm. So Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hmm. I mean, we could spend a long time unpacking that passage, (laughs) but let me just kind of point out a few things that come to mind as I look at it. First of all, he says in verse 3, you have died. Now, that's hard in some sense because we want to live in our sin. We want to live in our normal pattern of, of the flesh, if you will. But because we have died to self, we have died to sin, we've surrendered to God. That means we're free from its power. We're no longer under its dominion when sin is, is tempting us or, or, or barking orders at us. Mm-hmm. We are no longer slaves to sin, as Romans chapter 6 reminds us. But we are also free from the guilt and shame that that brings. And I think that's so important because as a pastor, sometimes I'll talk to someone and there's just a cloud that comes over their countenance and they begin to recount something that happened years and years ago. They've been that, dragging that dead corpse with them all Exactly. All that, that they are just still carrying that burden. And I think that's something we need to remember as well, that when God forgives us, he wipes away not just the penalty of that sin, but the weight of guilt and shame and condemnation that so often Satan wants to bring back to us. And so when we think about the fact that we have died to sin, that then should motivate us to put to death sin. Because let's be honest, it it still rears its ugly head in a variety of different ways. And so if we think about our new identity, which is the next thing Paul talks about here, we have to diligently and and ruthlessly put to death that sin because it no longer fits who we are in Christ. And so then the next thing he says is, you have died and now your life is hidden with Christ. I love that image because, you know, it's like we're wrapped in Jesus Christ. We are concealed by the robes of his righteousness so that we stand before God, not on the basis of our own worthiness, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And so when we think about that, that means his resurrection power, the very same resurrection that brought Christ out of the tomb, is living in us. That's what empowers our ability to put to death sin, to to live in, in the fruit of the Spirit, if you will. And then the Holy Spirit, as he lives in us, is progressively and purposefully transforming us into his image. So, you know, often when we talk about this in counseling terms, we're putting off and we're putting on. We have to put off the old patterns that don't fit our new identity and put on the new patterns in the power of the Spirit and in and, and the pattern of Christ. And then finally, it is this kind of new identity that says, how do we live this out? How do we live in light of our kingdom citizenship, and that transforms our thoughts, our decisions, our desires, because we're now living with an eternal perspective rather than just an earthly perspective. And so I think that's what he's saying in in verse 1 here. If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. And I'll speak for myself. It is really easy to live just with a very earthly, temporal focus. You know, we're worried about financial pressures. We're worried about family situations. We're worried about circumstances or health concerns. And all those things are real, but they have to be framed in that eternal perspective to be understood properly. We're worried about a snow shower in late April. Doggone, I'm looking out the window. Is that... That can't be happening, kid. You know, it's supposed to be 80 yeah, degrees right. on Saturday, <laughs> so we're just looking forward to that. Oh, but, but so true. And then you talk here uh, about putting on, verse starting there in verse 12, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Sounds an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. 
Yes, absolutely. And all of those characteristics flow from God and are for his glory and for our good. I think that's what we have to remember is that he's not just calling us to let go of these bad things to live a miserable existence. (laughs) He's calling us to let go of these empty things that we might find the fullness of life that we can really only find in him. There may be one listening today or whenever they're listening to this podcast who has never before truly considered the ramifications of Jesus's resurrection. Some closing thoughts for that individual. I think the the sobering reality is that every one of us will die someday. Whenever I do a funeral, that's always something that I try to include is one day we will be the one in the casket and it will be our friends and family that are gathered. The good news is the Bible promises there's life after death for everyone. Hmm. The bad news is that (laughs) our default destination is not heaven. Right. Because we've rebelled against God, what we deserve is eternal punishment and separation from God. But here's where the resurrection comes in. Because Jesus died for us and took the penalty that we deserved, we can have forgiveness. We can have new life. But it doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't happen just because we know the story or we attend church or our parents were Christians. It requires us to personally transfer our trust from who we are or what we've done or how good we try to be to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that's humbling, and that's hard. As simple as the message of the gospel is, it's incredibly challenging to take that step of surrender. But if you do, in that you find freedom from the slavery you didn't even know was slavery, and you find a joy that you didn't even know was possible here on this earth. And the amazing thing about the resurrection is that it provides a joy that the earth cannot provide and that the earth cannot take away because it is an eternal hope. And so if this is something that you're hearing and and you've even heard this message before, but you've never come to that point, I would encourage you not only to make that decision, but to make that decision in conversation with a fellow believer, with someone who's a believer, not because you need them in order to trust Christ, but because you need them once you start trusting Christ and following him. And what better time than when you're taking those steps as a point of encouragement and excitement and celebration together. Tim, thank you for your time. I know you and I are going to be spending some time here this next few days uh, together and uh, looking forward to that and looking forward to sharpening one another as we do go together. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be down at the Together for the Gospel Conference hearing some great preaching and worship. And, and the thing I'm most excited about is just being able to develop relationships with our staff and fellow elders because it is that community is a really important part of living out the resurrection life together. Thanks for being with us. Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapters 27 and 28, and you can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word as we wrap up the final five verses of Matthew chapter 28 and put a capstone on the study of Matthew's Gospel account. Until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. 
Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.